So as we come to this series, just like the video said, we're, we're recognizing, we're stating, we're declaring that there are some truths that never change. And those truths come from God. And that is so refreshing because as Christians, we didn't come up with Christianity. Okay, we didn't invent this thing. We didn't invent God. We didn't invent scripture. We didn't invent the religion. We didn't make it. It is making us. And that is so refreshing because in a world that is changing so rapidly and sometimes it feels like you just can't keep up, you can come back around some things that never change. Last week we talked about how we're not lifting up God or Christianity or the Bible It's what's lifting us up. And we feel like we got to defend the Bible all the time. But really, the Bible is defending us. The Bible is lifting us up. If you missed last week, we talked about understanding the Bible, the power of the Bible, um, understanding how it was organized, how it was put together, and and how we can honor it today. And that's going to be a building block message. Uh, So I'd love for you to hear that online or on iTunes podcast or maybe CD. But this week we come to the second part as we preach through our doctrinal statement. That's what we're doing, the essentials, faiths of our doctrinal statement. And this is the statement from our doctrinal statement. We believe in the one true living God who is perfect, infinite, eternal, coexisting in three persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the theological word for this is the word trinity. You've probably heard that before. The trinity is the term Christianity uses to describe God's existence as three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who remain one indivisible God. Now, I'll just tell you right off the bat, right at the beginning of this message, if you're looking for a really good, solid, you know, how can I understand the Trinity? Or if you're looking for a really good illustration for the Trinity, you're not going to find one, actually, because there is nothing in existence that exists that way but God. Okay, so the concept of a triune God, one God, three persons, that's more than difficult to comprehend. That's impossible to comprehend. Humans are the most complex creatures in existence, yet we exist as single persons. Yes, we have a mind, we have a body, we have a spirit, but we're still single persons. So the explanations that many have come up with to make the Trinity more understandable to us they're noble, but they're, they're always going to fall short. And we got to recognize that. So like you'll hear, well, the Trinity is like water and ice and, and gas. No, it's really not. <laughs> and the Trinity is like an egg because it's one thing, but you got the eggshell and the yolk and the egg white. And it's really not like an egg at all. <laughs> and that's just something we celebrate as we come to God, that we celebrate, hey, there's some things that His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that's really good because I'll tell you right now, if I believe in a God that I totally understand everything about, that's a red flag. That's going to scare me to death because that means I know everything and that I can understand everything about God means that uh, I'm God. And that's a big problem. So there are many things that God has graciously explained about himself. But there are some things that as we approach them, we're not going to be able to fully understand or illustrate them. So there's going to be an element of today and the next two weeks as we, we walk down, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, kind of this three-part in this nine-week series where we're celebrating a little bit of what Paul called a divine 
mystery, but I don't want you to take that too far because there are a lot of things that we can understand. And just because we can't fully understand doesn't mean that, well, we'll just fill in the gaps ourselves and we'll develop a view of God that that we want to have. No, that's not necessary. Because in these three weeks here, we're only cracking the surface of who God is and all that we really know about God. This book, the Bible, is about God. I mean, we got a whole thing here about God, laying out God's character for us, who he is, and then how we are to live in light of what he's revealed to us about himself. Here's some of the verses from our statement, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We get to Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there in those two verses, we see God is one, he exists in three persons. One other key verse from our statement on God is John 4, 24. Jesus is talking. He says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And this means that we have to worship him as he really is. Okay, let me illustrate this for you. If I were to go home today and walk in the door and see my wife and start, you know, just, babe, you are so wonderful. You are so beautiful. If I start praising my wife and I say, you just look so good and I love your, your brown hair. It's so beautiful. And your brown eyes, they're so beautiful. Sounds good. There's a big problem with that. And I've got a big problem because my wife has blonde hair and she has blue eyes. And so as we come to God, it's kind of like that. As we approach God, we want to make sure we do it with some truth. Okay, we do it with some accuracy about who he really is. So today we're going to do some theological work together. Theology is the study of God or the understanding of God. And us as Rockbrook Church, we always want to come around God's revelation of who he is to us. Because there's two approaches to God. One is I could take my view and my experience and my past and the way I see the world and through that I could shape God into the God that he is. Or I could go to his living word and have him show me who he is. And through that lens, we could look at the experience of our lives. Through that, we filter our thoughts and our viewpoints and they begin to be shaped by good theology, the understanding of God. And there is something beautiful. I'm telling you, Rockbrook Church, there is something absolutely beautiful and amazing when we start to put God at the center and everything we have begins to revolve around him. Because just a reminder for you today, and I'm sorry, I don't really have a a really happy Mother's Day thought for you, but we get one life and we get one shot at this. And in my one life, there's going to be some good, there's going to be some bad, there's going to be some things I understand, many things I don't. And there may be joys, there's going to be sorrows, there's going to be highs and lows, and then at some point, it's going to be over for me. And the question that hangs is, what did I live for? Did my life count for something? And don't you want your one chance to amplify the thing that matters most? And that's why the next three weeks in this, in this nine-week series, that's what it's all about. So are you ready to do some theological work with me today? Say yes. Who is God? There's three qualifications to be God. There's a lot of qualifications to be God, but these three are really going to rule out everything and everyone else but the one true God 
made known to us through creation, revealed to us through the scriptures. And the first qualification is you got to be omniscient. Omniscient, write that in. You got to know everything. Isaiah 46, 9. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. God says, I've got these bookends on existence And guess what? I know everything that's going on in between those bookends. Oh, and I know everything before and after the bookends as well. Job 21, 22. But who are we to tell God how to run his affairs? He's dealing with matters that are way over our heads. In Psalm 147, our Lord is great with limitless strength. will never comprehend what he knows and does. The second qualification is you got to be omnipotent, which means you can do everything. Isaiah 46, 10, I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Jeremiah 32, you created earth and sky by your great power, by merely stretching out your arm. There is nothing you can't do. And the third qualification is you got to be omnipresent, which means you're everywhere all the time. Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So he's everywhere all the time. This week I read about a man who was petitioning a court to get a restraining order against God. And that is absolutely hilarious. I'm not sure how he's going to pull that off. But isn't that the way we think sometimes? I'm not going to go to church this weekend. I can't face God. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to pray. I I can't be in God's presence. I I can't be around God right now. Psalm 139 tells us, Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit to be out of your sight. If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. Then I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in the light. It's fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. Jesus, in his instructions on prayer, Reveal to us that God is an omnipresent God. He says, here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. So this list, just these three things alone, bring us to the one true God. The God made known to us through creation and revealed to us through the scriptures. And this omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient God starts creating. And he creates the heavens and the earth and light and darkness. And he separates waters and dry land and all that we see. And he creates the whole universe. And guess what one thing in the universe, guess what one of the things in the universe is? One of the things that God created. Guess what it is? Sitting in your seat. It's you. God created you, God created me, and we're one of the things that a glorious God, an amazing God, created. 
Last Easter, we, we took a survey. We surveyed, surveyed everybody that came to church that weekend. And we asked all of you, hey, what, what do you want to hear? What topic do you want to hear in a sermon? Like, what do you want to hear a sermon about? And the number one answer we got back by far was, what's God's will for my life? What's God's plan for my life? What's God's purpose for my life? And we're looking forward to in the fall, we're going to be doing a whole, a whole series on the questions we got from that. But I want to help you out a little bit with that question today, because that's not the first time that question's been asked. Uh, one place in history where we see that question is in the Westminster Shorter Catechism of 1646 and 1647. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism was a project or a way of uniting the Church of Scotland and of England, which means nothing to us today, but this was a very powerful thing. The church is uniting, and the goal was to bring a critical mass of the thinking of what true Christianity is. So it became 107 questions which defined faith in Christ and what it means to live out that faith. And the first question, question number one on the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the chief end of man? Meaning what's the ultimate purpose of mankind? What's the ultimate reason for the human race? And if you're going to start down a road of building a theological understanding, good theology, that's a great place to start. You're starting with, well, why am I here? Why is there a me? What's going on with all these people? Why are they here? What's the point of it all? And what's the one thing that will let me know at the end of the day, I fulfilled that reason? If I could do one thing, is it branch out, start another branch of the business? Is it four kids and not three kids? Or is it, hey, it's three kids and one's a doctor, one's a lawyer, one's a baseball player and they all marry amazing people and then I will know that my short time on life counted because I contributed to these amazing lives. Is that the reason? A man's chief end, the answer they have is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So everything about us is summarized and grounded in this initial understanding that we are made by a glorious God so that our lives could reflect the glory of God. And with that, we could be in a relationship with God and know him. I tell you, this is a theological message. You're probably not going to walk away today with, hey, this, these are the three things that's going to make my life better. Here's the three application points for my life. That's not this weekend. But how can we not get something out of it if we're coming to a better understanding of who God is and what he's up to? How could we not get something amazing out of that? So we need to define glory. What's glory? How do you get your hands around it? I mean, we know in its company, it's got applause, it's got fame, it has, a, it has position. The word glory as we understand it today comes from two words, an Old Testament word, which is kabod. And I was walking through this message with my dad. He says, no, 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 that's Hebrew, that's kabod. And I'm like, okay, dad, I don't have time for Hebrew right now. I'm just going to say it's kabod, and it means weight. So if you were to say, we want to buy this amount of produce that weight would equalize and you would be told the worth of what you want to buy. That's kabod. The word in the Old Testament is primarily the word weight. And we get that because if something's chintzy, it, it doesn't weigh very much, but if something's got some weight or some beef to it, it's got some substance, it's worth something. And we don't add anything to the weight 
or the worth of God. It's his intrinsic glory from eternity past and eternity future, and he's always been God. And when you put God on the scale, it tips the scale all the way down, and you're not going to find anything ever that could balance out that scale. Its weight and its worth exceeds everything else. The New Testament word is the word doxa, and it means judgment, estimate, or opinion. So if you go to a movie and you say, well, I didn't really care for it, or it was the best ever, or here's where it could be better, you're now giving glory to the movie because you're declaring weight and worth to the movie, and that's glory. And everything we want in life is clarified around this idea. I will succeed in life if my life brings glory to God. And we are glory givers every single day. Just like when you go to a symphony and before they play that amazing work of art, they say, that's Chopin. And you give glory to the composer. And just like when you go to an art gallery, they say, this is a Rembrandt. And you give glory to the artist. And just like you walk into a room and you see a ceiling full of frescoes and they say, this is Michelangelo's handiwork. And they give glory to the artist. And you'll go to work this week and it will be one glory story after another because everyone's going to tell you why whatever they saw, ate, drank, laughed at, or whoever they were with was the greatest thing ever. And you're going to go, that's a great glory story. Because we want to promote something. It's not bad. I mean, that's why we were created. It's we want to give glory to something. We want to recognize glory. We were created to do that and to promote it. And God is saying... I want you to wrap all that around me, all that glory, all that, all that thing I put inside of you to promote something, that's, that's me. About a decade ago, or over a decade ago, I read a chapter in a book, and it, I've read a chapter in a book since then, um, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about this specific one. <laughs> and it totally reframe, reframed my life. Uh, it was like... I had some kind of software update on my life. Like, I don't know, do, who has a, a, one of these, a smartphone? Who's got one of these? Do you ever get the software update notification on your phone? You ever see one of those? I get these every once in a while, and, and I kind of wait it out because I know, okay, the first one's going to be full of bugs, and I'll kind of catch up on it later. And, and then after about a month or so, I get tired of seeing the notification there, and so before I go to bed one night, okay, all right, I tell my phone, it's time to software update, and I put it on the charger, and I lay it down, and then the next morning, I pick up my phone, and I kind of forget that I did that, and I'm looking, and I'm like, whoa, this is different. Like, this looks totally different. Still my phone, and this piece of what I'm about to read to you did that for me. It was like, wow, same life, same circumstances, same family, same job, same church, same place in the world, everything is different. Everything looks different. Everything's operating differently. So let, let me read part of this to you, and then I'll tell you what it's from, and then you'll see what I mean. It's all for him. The ultimate goal of the universe is to show the glory of God. It's the reason for everything that exists, including you. God made it all for his glory. Without God's glory, there would be nothing What is the glory of God? It's who God is. It's the essence of his nature, the weight of his importance, the radiance of his splendor, the demonstration of his power, and the atmosphere of his presence. God's glory is the expression of his goodness, 
and all his other intrinsic eternal qualities. Where is the glory of God? Just look around. Everything created by God reflects his glory in some way. We see it everywhere from the smallest microscopic form of life to the vast Milky Way, from sunsets and stars to storms and seasons. Creation reveals our creator's glory. In nature, we learn that God is powerful. He enjoys variety. He loves beauty, is organized, and is wise and creative. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Throughout history, God has revealed his glory to people in different settings. He revealed it first in the Garden of Eden, and then to Moses, then in the tabernacle and the temple, then through Jesus, and now through the church. It was portrayed as a consuming fire, a cloud, thunder, smoke, and a brilliant light. In heaven, God's glory provides all the light needed. The Bible says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. God's inerrant glory is what he possesses because he is God. It's in his nature. And we can't add anything to this glory, just as it would be impossible for us to make the sun shine brighter. But we're commanded to recognize his glory, honor his glory, declare his glory, praise his glory, reflect his glory, and live for his glory. Why? Because God deserves it. We owe him every honor we can possibly give. Since God made all things, he deserves all the glory. And that's day seven of The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. And it radically changed the way I read the Bible. And it radically changed the way I went to church and saw life. And I realized, I remember still the sinking feeling in my chest that I have been hijacking the story of God. I started reading through scripture and God's glory is on every page. I started realizing, wow, this is not about me. Like church doesn't exist for me and the pastor isn't all about me and my small group. Wow, that's really not about me. And so when I read and learned about the glory of God, it started changing the questions that I was asking. So before I was asking, what's God's will for my life? What's God's purpose for my life? What's God's plan for my life? And it started flipping those questions around to where I started asking, what's God doing in the world? What's God up to? And how can I get on board with that? What's God's plan for God and the world? What's, what's God doing? And how could I contribute to that? And then I see, okay, well, if God's glory is supposed to be my motivation and the Westminster Shorter Catechism says I'm supposed to live for his glory, then what motivates God? What's God living for? What's driving God? And I'm thinking, well, if God is all glorious, all wonderful, and he's the best thing out there, and his weight and worth is better than anything else, well, he ought to know that because he's God. So he knows that, and he knows that his name is higher than every other name, and he knows that he's the best thing out there. So what would be the Westminster Shorter Catechism for God? What's the chief end of God? And we would think that if the chief end of man is to glorify God, then the chief end of God must be to glorify man. We would think that, well, if man is living their life for God, God's living his life for man, right? No, the chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, or more simply put, the chief end of God is to enjoy glorifying himself forever. And just hang with me, because I, I realize this is a 180 for a lot of us in this room, that before there was a world, 
before there was existence, before there was creation, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And guess what? They were doing just fine. They were existing in this three-in-one community. It was totally fulfilled community. Before there was a first star, God was completely happy being God. He did not have an anxiety breakdown. He did not say, I just don't know what we're going to do today. My self-esteem is really dropping. I know. Let's create some humans who can praise us and get our self-esteem lifted back up. No, God was thinking, whoa, this is so good. It's a shame that no one knows how good we are. Because there's nothing like us. And no one else knows that. Let's create man in our image. And let's not make him like a tree or a rock or an animal. Let's do something awesome and amazing. And let's make him with glory in his DNA. And the possibility to have a glory connection with us. You see, in life, something matters more than everything else. It does. And if God doesn't tell us what that is, we're in a lot of trouble because we're out searching for all these things that don't really matter. And if God lets us think that the most ultimate, the the ultimate thing in life is something that isn't really all that great, that would be absolutely cruel, right? It wouldn't be loving. So every time God steps on the scene, he does the most loving thing thing he could ever do and he says hello God here and he announces his worth he announces his weight he announces his presence look at this with in Romans 11 with me says oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. God says all things came from me. All things exist because they exist under my jurisdiction and they exist for me and my glory. So every time God steps on the scene... He's going to go, hello, my name is the Lord, God here. This thing that you're worshiping that you've set up and you're wrapping your life up, get that out of here, doesn't compare. What's that doing here? He steps into our lives and he says, oh, that's your hope? That's your dream? That's what you're living for? That's the person that you're, get that out of here. Look, I am, have all this intrinsic worth and weight from eternity past and eternity future. You see it all through scripture, Isaiah 42, 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. Don't you know God knows his name? Because if God doesn't know his name, well, then he's not God anymore because he didn't match the qualification of knowing everything. So he says, that's my name. Name above all names right here. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. You see it on every page. And I just want to run down some of these, some aren't in your outline, but I just want to give you so much scripture today because I don't want you to leave here saying, well, that guy up there said, no, I want you to leave here says, holy living word of God says, Isaiah 43, everyone who is called by my name, who I created, why? For my glory, whom I formed and made. When God gave the 10 commandments, says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because he wanted to ruin their life? Absolutely not. It's because God's out to save your life. And he says, don't make another idol. Don't put another thing at the center because it's going to short sheet you at the end of the day because nothing you could put there is going to last forever. And no person that you put there is going to last forever. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him because their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And that's what sin always does. It always trades out the worth and weight of the almighty God, our creator, for something finite and cheap and chintzy. 1 Timothy 1 15, it's on the screen. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might, be, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And unfortunately, we always stop there. For whatever reason, whenever we pull out this verse for anything, we stop there. It says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This verse says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. How did, how, why are we sinners? How are we sinners? For all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. Our sin cuts us off from the weight and worth of God. And we're always trying to define repentance. Is repentance saying, well, I sinned here and I promise I'm never going to do that again. And re- repentance is understanding that all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning when we sinned, we put something else at the center of our lives and we said, I'm living for that. And we fell short of putting Christ at the center of our lives and saying, all I need is you, obviously. So repentance is saying, what I've put here is not good enough. It's not good enough. This feeling, this hope, this dream, this drug, whatever, it's not good enough. Repentance says, I'm moving that out and I'm putting God back in. And God is promoting and defending his glory by an act of love because when he does it, he's preserving for us the very best thing that there is. And when we see it, it changes everything. I'll talk to people, they'll say, there's no way God could save me or that God wants anything to do with me. You don't understand what I've done. I'll say, you don't understand what my life has looked like and you don't understand the things that I've done. There's no way salvation is available to me. I tell them, no, you don't understand. Salvation isn't even about you. God doesn't save you because of who you are. He saves you because of who he is. And he steps in and he says, yes, I will save you because look how much I'm worth. Look at the glory story you could have about me. Acts 7, uh, 2 through 3 says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Why did Abraham, why was he compelled to leave everything? 
the glory of God. Ezekiel 36, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. The Israelites kept messing up and they kept lifting up idols and they kept wandering away from God and they kept putting other things at the center. And God says, I'm still coming for you. Not because of who you are. I'm doing it, God says, for my reputation. I'm doing it in spite of all those things you've done for my glory because its worth is beyond anything that you could imagine. The Christmas story starts with the angels making a declaration. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest heaven. Well, what about us? I thought Christmas was about me. That's why I'm getting presents every year. He says, oh yeah, and on earth, peace to those whom, whom his favor rests. In the Christmas story, God gets the glory. He gets the applause. It's about him. And we get exactly what we're looking for. The best thing out there, God himself. God gets the glory, we get the best. God gets the glory, and we get the best. Jesus healed people for the glory of God, Mark 2. He got up, this man that Jesus had just, the paralyzed man Jesus had healed, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Why did Jesus die on the cross? John 12 says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The cross was not about making much of me. The cross was about making much of God. Did we get something out of it? Absolutely. We got a restored life and we get to reunite our lives with God. But Jesus hung on that, on that cross, hung on that tree to declare and to say, this is how much God's glory is worth. This is what it's worth. It's worth my very life. I'll show you the weight and worth of the glory of God. Look no further. Our provision is from the glory of God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The church exists for the glory of God. See it in Ephesians. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I just wonder, does, does anyone when they leave church, and, and we've got all our opinions and our judgments and our estimates of, about these songs and these singers and this sermon and, oh man, Pastor Kelly's gone again and this joker's up there preaching. And, <laughs> does anyone when they leave church Say, God, what did you think? It's for him. God, what, what do you think of my life? Does it line up with what we sang and what we talked about today? Is God on the radar when we come and leave this place? Glory is what missions is all about. Psalm 86, 9, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. That's why we're going to distant lands, as Isaiah said, that have never heard or, or recognized or seen the fame of God. Because at the end of evangelism and at the end of missions is glory. The benediction of scripture is, and the benediction of our lives is the glory of God. Jude 1. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy 
To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. God's glory is the theme of heaven, Revelation 4. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. I just say thank God. Thank God that he loves us enough to step into our lives and promote himself and promote his glory and reveal who he is and the only thing worth living for. Because our lives are a vapor. The Bible says our lives are like dew on a blade of grass. It's like when I got up this morning, there was a little dew on the grass, and it's not there anymore. It knows nothing of church today. It knows nothing of the student service tonight. It knows nothing of dinner. It knows nothing of the rest of the day. And the Bible says, yeah, that's pretty much your life. And so are, what are you going to point to? What are you going to use your short time on earth to amplify and promote? And he says, don't get sucked into the idea that anything or anyone is more valuable than me. Would you bow your heads? Let's, let's pray together. And I invite you now just to ask this question, ask in your mind right now, what am I living for that's falling short of your glory? And God wants you to have loves. He wants you to love people. He wants you to enjoy things that he created, but he is clear, nothing else and no one else can forever fulfill us like him. Just ask him, God, what, what do I need to move out of the center of my life so I can put you in that spot? We just close with the benediction of scripture to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.